Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 234, Dr. James R. Gordon on the Extra Calvinisticum, Part 2. Dr. James R. Gordon holds a Ph.D. in Biblical and Theological Studies from Wheaton College. He's a visiting assistant professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. He's here with us today to talk about his book, The Holy One in Our Midst, an essay on the flesh of Christ. This is a monograph-length treatment of a topic called the Extra Calvinisticum. Dr. Gordon, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks for having me again, Dale. So last week we talked about the Extra Calvinisticum, which is the subject of your book, The Holy One in Our Midst. And before we continue with the discussion, let's just quickly have you recap what the Extra Calvinisticum is. The Extra Calvinisticum basically wants to make the claim that during the Incarnation, the Word maintains all of the attributes, especially omnipresence, that the Word had before the Incarnation. And so even though the Word assumed a human nature in the person of Christ, that the Word is still omnipresent beyond that physical body and maintains the world and is present everywhere beyond that physical location of where his body is. Yeah, and historically, this extra-Calvinisticum has been a topic of dispute between Reformed and Lutheran theologians in modern times. Yes. Are both of them very against kenosis approaches to incarnation? So this is a really important interpretive issue historically. Some of the early Lutherans were less a fan of kenotic Christologies. Let's just remind people what those are, too. Not everybody's familiar with that term. So the idea here is coming from the passage in Philippians that says that Christ emptied himself and became human. The Lutherans who affirmed this canonic view say that while we have things that it is to be God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, whatever, we have the things that it is to be human, and basically they're in the negation of the things it is to be God— And so, in order to become human, God had to get rid of, in some way or another, some of those attributes that he had in order to be incarnate in Jesus Christ. And so, there are some important historical distinctions here between a a lot of different varieties of canonic Christologies. And here I point to, I believe it's Thomas Thompson's work. He does a really great historical overview of the different varieties, because a lot of times people refer to canonic Christology, but it turns out that in the Lutheran tradition, it's not a monolithic thing at all. And in fact, some of the earliest canonicists were not wanting to say that the word strictly gave up any sort of attributes. They wanted to say something a, a little bit more modest along the lines of what some recent revivers of canonic Christology are wanting to say, or something like the eternal being of God has built in some kinds of properties like omniscient and less incarnate or something like that. So there's no giving up of omniscience. It's not an essential property, but rather a a relational property that God can give up without giving up his godhood. And so anyway, 
Canonic Christologies are generally opposed to the Reformed tradition. The Reformed tradition usually sides with something along the lines of what's referred to as crypsis. It means concealment as opposed to giving up or emptying. So according to the crypsis view, in assuming a human nature, that human nature veils, conceals, hides the attributes that the son has, but he doesn't actually give them up as the canonic view. Yeah, so the canonic view could mean a lot of different things. I think if if it meant actually losing what are essential divine attributes, it would just be rejected out of hand as heresy in any prior time. Right. I guess the reason I asked is because if the concern of the extra Calvinisticum is to preserve divine omnipresence and one open the door to the word losing divine attributes, you might say, why couldn't it just temporarily lose omnipresence? The Calvinists are not wanting to uh, grant that there's any kind of loss of attributes, right? And the, the Lutherans, you're saying, well, they could hold different positions. Yeah, that's right. The Calvinists certainly would want to avoid understanding the kenosis as a giving up of those properties. Those properties are maintained by the word through the incarnation and even on into the ascension. Okay, so something that comes up many times in the book uh, for different reasons is this idea of communication of attributes. So can you explain to us what that claim is and in what sense do you think it's true if you do? Yeah, so there's some different ways that this might be understood, but basically it means that we can predicate certain attributes to the person, Jesus Christ, here the the Logos, by virtue of the nature that is the origin of that action or the substance to which that action is attributed or something like that. So when we say, for instance, that Jesus Christ suffered, we might say, Jesus Christ suffered according to or by virtue of his human nature. The tradition would say the divine nature is impassable. It can't suffer. We can still say that the one subject of the incarnation, the word, suffered, but it's proper to say so according to the nature that that kind of action is appropriate to. Understood in that sense. Why isn't that just a policy of obfuscation? I mean, you're, <laughs> you've got this thing, yeah. the divine nature that uh, is essentially immortal and can't die, but we're going to say it dies because, well, it seems like the right thing to say because Jesus died, right? <laughs> but then they would, some, some of them would yeah. say what was really the human nature that died. And then the divine nature's uh, immortal. Even though the human nature died, you can say that it's essentially immortal because of the union. Because you don't want to say something else because otherwise how could it be divine? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think this goes back to origin. He uses it for different reasons, but it does seem like it's obfuscation to me, at least if it's understood as a policy of what should be said. Yeah, um, I think two things are worth mentioning here. Uh, one, when we think of the way, at least, and I'll go to, to Calvin here, even though, as I mentioned before, the extra Calvinisticum is is not his invention, but... He makes use of the communication of attributes quite a bit, and um, the way that Paul Helm interprets Calvin here, and I think he's right about what Calvin is doing, is that Calvin uses the communication of attributes as a hermeneutic tool to make sense of the diverse and, as I think you just put it, seemingly contradictory claims of Scripture. And so you might have picked up in the book, I kind of punt here in that 
I take it that some of the basic things that we have to say according to Chalcedon seem to entail the communication of attributes as a way to make sense of what is being said about this one nature that is fully human and fully divine and how exactly it is that one subject can have seemingly contradictory predicates. So yeah, some of the the more strong objections against compositional Christology, for instance, come from Thomas Senor, who really hammers this out and says, look, if it's the case that you have um, the property of being I don't know, located a particular place and the property of not being located at that particular place, then it seems that we have some kind of contradiction there. Like you can't both be and not be mm-hmm. there at the same time. So some critics use the objection here to say, look, we should search for a different kind of Christology, whether it's a canonic view that makes better sense of this because we don't have to have this communication of attributes in the same way, where others, what most of the tradition wants to say is just that somehow we are able to predicate these seemingly contradictory things of one and the same person, because that's the language that scripture uses for these things. Maybe this brings up some of the stuff that you've done on Mysterian views. Um, Maybe this is the Mysterian element in this view. I'm not sure. Well, that's another conversation, Mysterianism. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I'm just not that loyal to Chalcedon, honestly, to swallow something like that. But I mean, to go back to the communication of attributes, I got the impression, I'm not sure you really staked out a position yourself on this in the book, but I got the impression when you were talking about some of the many modern era theologians that you're interacting with, that some of them take it in a much more metaphysical sense, like that each nature actually does possess attributes that might, in a deeper sense, be possessed by the other one. So it's almost like having a property mm-hmm. by borrowing or something like that. I mean, isn't that right that some of them take it as not just a linguistic decision, but they think there's something yeah. metaphysical going on with the attributes? That's right. And this is the distinction that I, I owe to Oliver Crisp. He makes the distinction between strong views and weak views of the communication mm-hmm. of attributes. The strong views would be probably we could put someone like Jurgen Moltmann in this category where the ancient concept of perichoresis ends up being applied to the natures here. Perichoresis, that traditional concept that wants to say that the three persons of the Trinity somehow are fully open to one another, and that can be parsed out in a lot of different ways. But yeah, it is a modern trend that this communication of attributes was applied metaphysically to the natures of Christ, and even metaphysically in some ways then to the God-world relationship to talk about Moltmann speaks of kenosis in terms of what creation is. It's a divine self-giving whereby the creation, the created order has some effect on the divine being, and um, it's much more Hegelian sounding. So yeah, this the communication of attributes historically is applied linguistically. I think there's a distinction in the medievals between the reduplicative strategy and the predicative strategy of how you can use the communication of attributes. But yeah, it gets taken in a strong metaphysical sense as, and not just a linguistic tool in the modern era. Yeah, this seems like another unresolved problem to me. Which one is that? What to make of this tradition of communication of attributes. I mean, are you aware of finding it before origin? 
I kind of think that's the first place I see it. I don't know of anywhere before Origin, but I know that we might you might look at I think Irenaeus has something like this as well. I know that there's some some work has been done on I think it's Leonidas of Byzantium or mm-hmm. something like that that he introduces a new version of it. I'm not well versed on the the pre-modern history of this concept as much as the extra Calvinisticum. Oh, fair enough. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Gordon and I discuss some objections to the extra Calvinisticum. talk about some of the objections you make it your project in this book to defend the extra calvinisticum against some objections that theologians have lodged against it the three of the main ones i think are that it entails that the incarnation is incomplete yeah that nestorianism is true you'll have to explain what nestorianism is uh, and that it creates our problems regarding worshiping the sun so why don't you take us through what these objections are without going in necessarily to all the historical details about who lodged them. Let's, let's just talk about the objections and sort of what you think the right answers are. Sure. So first of all, the idea that the extra Calvinisticum entails that the incarnation was incomplete. This might just be that since in the incarnation, we want to say, according to the extra Calvinisticum, that the word remains outside of the flesh of Christ. Someone might say, well, there's sort of like a remainder. Like if Mm -hmm. we were you know, pouring the sun into a jar, if it was like water being poured into a glass and the glass overflows, well, like some of the water is not in the glass. And that seems to be the case then that what we have in Jesus Christ is not the full and complete sun. Like this is uh, Karl Barth's objection. He, He wants to say something like, if we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, we need to talk about the Jesus Christ that we see as the full revelation of God, and there can't be some other God behind Jesus Christ back. Later in his career, he seems to worry that the extra Calvinisticum might be guilty of that. I think the way to address this objection is to focus on divine simplicity here, and to say that given that we're not saying it's as if God as such is omnipresent or omniscient, and that Jesus of Nazareth is not, we don't have a way of wanting to divide up the God we're experiencing. That is, the God that we encounter in Christ just is identical to all of the stuff that's happening beyond the physical body of Christ as well. So divine simplicity does work for me here in securing the identity of the word both within the body of Christ and without, that there are not two distinct words here, but it's the same subject acting in the same ways at different locations. So then strictly speaking, there is no leftover part at all. 
That's right. So I make use of some contemporary distinctions in the metaphysics of spatial location between something being wholly located, entirely located, and partly located. And I reject the idea that the Logos is either entirely located in the body of Christ or partly located. So it's not as if a part of the Logos is in Christ and a part is outside, nor is it the case that the Logos is entirely located in the body of Christ and not anywhere else. But the the concept that I make use of is this idea of being wholly located. And recent metaphysical work is using this concept to talk about how, how one object might be wholly located at multiple places. And this gets taken in a lot of different directions. But uh, the, the basic idea is that you can have something wholly inside the body of Christ and wholly outside in a way that the thing that is inside and outside is the identical thing. And so this seems to me to satisfy the objection, which the heart of which is just that there's this unknown part beyond that we don't experience, when in fact, it just is the same thing that we're experiencing within and without Christ's body. Very interesting metaphysical stuff there. This is toward the end of the book. Uh, you refer to work by people like Hud Hudson. And yeah, metaphysicians have some really interesting things to say about location, don't they? Yeah. My next project is Omnipresence. So uh, I just published an essay on what I take to be some desiderata for a doctrine mm-hmm. of omnipresence. And I'm trying to think about the omnipresence and the incarnation a bit further. Yeah, I got the impression in the book that you uh, are not a fan of kind of reducing divine omnipresence to just God's knowledge or God's power. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. There's a new trend, uh, a newer trend of reinterpreting Aquinas, who he says God is present by power and knowledge. And he also says present by essence. And the the prevailing trend has been to hold to a non-occupation view of omnipresence that says, well, for God to be present at a place is for God to know Mm -hmm. what's going on there and for God to be causing something there. And even a Thomist like Eleanor Stump has looked at those views and said, well, hold on, like that doesn't really describe how the God of scripture is present. God is personally present. And so Eleanor Stump develops the second person personal and says that it's not just that God is acting places and knows what's going on, but He's available to share attention with persons as well. And so I even go further and say that these things are all great and part of it, but we're still missing out on what it means for God to be present by essence, which means that God is spatially Mm -hmm. located. And so I'm working with Ross Inman and taking some other approaches that have been written on um, rereading Aquinas to do some work here. Yeah, I mean, to put it really crudely, uh, some Christian philosophers are saying, well, why can't we take omnipresence literally? Why do we have to try to reduce it to something that's not being everywhere? Yeah, that's exactly right. The big stick up, and I think this is the point that gets made in Robert Pasnow's work on Aquinas, he says that a lot of people have just thought it's the case that for something to be spatially located, since given Newtonian physics, just means for something to be a material object. And there's been a sort of renaissance that says, well, look, the medieval theologians have all these categories to talk about spatially located immaterial objects without Mm -hmm. having any problem. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to use as a resource. Yeah. And a few others will say, well, why can't God just be a special kind of material object? What's so bad about that? Yeah, that's right.
When the Trinity's podcast returns, does the extra Calvinisticum entail the ancient heresy of Nestorianism? let's move on to the Nestorianism objection. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but why don't you just quickly summarize what that problem is supposed to be and how, in your view, that does not sink the extra Calvinisticum. We talked specifically about the Christological models that might entail uh, Nestorianism. So more generally, I think the extra Calvinisticum and the Nestorian objection would just be that it seems that we have two subjects. We have Jesus of Nazareth walking around, thinking thoughts and saying things. And we also have the thoughts that he's thinking as he upholds the world by his very being or something like that. And it seems then that we have two distinct subjects of action and two distinct subjects that we can predicate things of here. And I think the the way I get around this is just talking about the one, this is the communication of attributes stuff in some ways, that the one subject is the subject of the word. And that one subject is what we predicate both the actions of the physical person, Jesus, and also the stuff that he does even beyond his physical body. It's not a two different subjects acting, but one in the same and only the same subject. So, yeah, it does rely on, on the communication of attributes. You talk at one point about the word personalizing the human nature, mm-hmm. but it's not that in your view, the word makes the human nature a person, but rather that whatever appears to be the agency of the personal agency of the, the composite Christ really turns out to really be the agency of the word. Isn't that right? Does your response even rely on the communication of attributes? Let me make sure I understand what you're attributing to me, that you said that I think that when we are talking about the actions of Jesus of Nazareth, we just are talking about the word acting in a particular way. Is that right? Yeah, because in your view, um, the composite is not a person, so it's not the kind of thing that can do personal actions. Yeah, that's right. But the nature can be the origin of a particular action. And so in this way, it does rely on the communication of attributes because even though we predicate things like walking around to the word, it's by virtue of the human nature that he has. But still, the, uh, the subject of the action is still, the actor is still the word, right? Yeah, that's right. I take it that that in, in some ways is what the communication of attributes is wanting to do, though, is just to say that we have one subject that can be the subject of these diverse predicates. Hmm. Maybe it depends what we take the communication of attributes principle to be. Because if it's just a linguistic principle of saying of one what's strictly speaking true only of the other, then that presupposes that there are two things there, right? Um, With respect to natures, that's right. But not with respect to persons here. So if Jesus walks... Strictly, the actor there is the word, but he does it through the human nature. 
That's right. Or according yeah. to, or by virtue of, or whatever way you want to parse that so out. So the nature is not really the act or the, the human nature is not, I mean. Yeah. The human nature is not the agent in any way, but it might be the principle of origin of the action or we can parse it out in a different way than that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's strictly speaking the, the word that is the agent here. So I know a lot of recent work, Thomas Morris uh, in his two minds view some might go in that direction and say, well, like we have, you know, the word as upholding the universe and, and like there's that stream of consciousness going on. And then there's like the stuff that he's doing, walking around, healing people and whatnot. And there's that stream of consciousness. I tend not to go that direction and just want to predicate both diverse experiences of the one person of the word. Yeah. Two minds accounts. That's another interesting topic. We probably shouldn't go into too much. It seems to me that's a very modern approach, though. It's not a, a very 20th and 21st century approach, not so much a uh, traditional approach, because they want to talk about yeah. not just minds, but natures. Right. And uh, maybe yeah. maybe each nature comes with a mind or maybe not. But I mean, plus, if you're interested in, you know, what look like incompatible things that have to be true of something that's both divine and human, the two minds thing only seems to help with knowledge and like maybe with intentional action and choice. Right. But it doesn't help with other things like omnipresence versus specific location or, um, and being necessarily existing versus contingent or being, uh, eternal versus not and things like that. It's, it just does, it doesn't do all the work that you have to do to come up with a consistent account. People mm -hmm. kind of overestimate how useful it is. I think Okay, so but let's get back on track. So, yeah. the, the extra Calvinisticum is not guilty of Nestorianism because, in one sentence, because there's only one subject acting in the person of Christ, and that's the Word who acts both according to His divine nature and according to His human nature. Now, what about these problems about worshiping the Son? What are these problems? So the problem gets stated by Isaac Dorner a Lutheran theologian in the modern era, he basically wants to say that if it's the case that the extra Calvinisticum is true, then there could be no adoration of the God-man, but only of the Logos in Christ. So when people worship Jesus Christ walking around Nazareth, they're not actually worshiping the composite walking around, they're worshiping just the Logos which means that, and this goes back to our distinction between the model A and T views and the different Christological models that we discussed last week as well. And it seems, though, that if, if this objection is right, I take it that this is probably the strongest objection. If we can't worship Jesus Christ as God because of the extra Calvinisticum, then surely it's the case that we ought to reject the extra Calvinisticum. Or in other words, left with the choice between affirming the extra Calvinisticum and choosing to worship Jesus Christ, it seems to me that the latter is the more desirable affirmation, namely to worship Christ. But I don't think that this objection is detrimental. And in the book, I look both at Thomas Aquinas and Francis Turretin, who explicitly address these issues. Aquinas, for instance, in question 25 of the Tertia Pars of the Summa, discusses the reverence due to Christ. And he asks whether Christ's divinity and humanity are paid one and the same reverence. 
and whether his flesh is to be paid divine worship. And he goes and parses these out in some different ways and talks about distinctions between different types of adoration. And he says that typically we might worship part of a given thing because of the dignity that the whole has. So like, I think he uses the analogy of you might kiss the emperor's hand, not because the hand possesses anything special in itself, but by virtue of the fact that it's possessed by the thing that you're attributing honor to. And so that's kind of the way Aquinas ends up going. But Turretin goes a bit further than Aquinas in a couple ways, and he wants to say that basically, if I recall, he says that the object of our worship is the God-man explicitly. So Aquinas is more like, well, we worship the being of Jesus Christ because of the person that possesses this nature. Where Turretin makes this distinction and says, we can distinguish between the objects that we're worshiping, the foundation that we worship them, and the reasons that we worship them. And ultimately, we're worshiping the mediator, which is the God-man. The foundation of the worship is the deity. That is, we have reason for worship because this God-man is fully God. And it's because of this, then, that we're able to worship Jesus Christ, because in the same way that the God-man is fully divine because it's the Logos incarnate. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Gordon argues that, in a sense, the extra-Calvinisticum is a biblical doctrine. Obviously, the extra-Calvinisticum is not an explicit doctrine of Scripture any more than, you know, Catholic Chalcedon-compliant Christology is explicit in Scripture. How, in your view, can it be shown that the extra-Calvinisticum is, anyway, a scriptural doctrine in some sense? I think a lot of this depends on what we mean by a scriptural doctrine, right? And and as you said, it's not something that's explicit. There is a question of whether it's something that's implicit, and here we might get to the, well, is it just that if you say that Jesus Christ is fully God, this is something you have to say? And while those who accept a canonic Christology might reject this for different reasons, and so maybe it's not even implicit in that way. And so what I do is I try to suggest that one way that we can look at why we ought to affirm the extra-Calvinisticum is using the temple and the biblical theological concept of the temple. So in the Old Testament, we get this interesting picture of God being located at a place, but God can like come and go from that place. So Israel, for instance, you know, builds this temple and then they don't honor God in their building of it and find out that like he doesn't dwell there when they want him to dwell there in the ways that they want him to dwell there. That is God's presence there is something that's totally by grace. And then we also get in this temple ways of looking at how God is present in a place and yet in no way thought exclusively to be present in that place. So just because God is present in the temple, it wasn't as if Israel thought, 
God is not anywhere else. So we can have things that are located in places mm-hmm. and yet be present beyond that place. Yeah. And so then when we get to the New Testament and we get the ways that the authors of Scripture, specifically the Gospel of John, want to talk about Christ as, in some ways, the true temple that replaces other temples or is the archetype that other temples were pointing towards, he says that the Word became flesh and dwelt or set up his tabernacle among us. And so I think then that we can use that application of the temple concept to God and then its application in the New Testament to the person of Christ, and th- at least see that the the extra Calvinisticum has biblical warrant here. Uh, it, it's not explicit in the sense that we can derive it from an easy reading of one text or something like that, nor am I arguing the entailment idea, but just that there's really good reason when we read all of Scripture theologically to affirm this doctrine in a, in a different sort of way than has typically been argued for. I wonder if that's quite specific enough a theme to support this. I mean, it does seem like a commonplace of Old Testament thinking and New Testament thinking that God can in some sense be in the temple and also be everywhere or also be outside the temple. And I think there is a theme, even if you don't base it on John 1, there is still a theme that uh, God is present in Christ and, uh, you know, he calls his body the temple, that if they tear it down, he'll raise it up in three days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fullness of deity dwells in him and so on. I mean, the interesting thing is, I mean, you don't have to accept a Chalcedonian view to to accept these things. I mean, Socinus could accept these things, right? It's really God acting through Christ and God's well, present in Christ, not in the incarnation way. I mean, I guess you're presupposing that scripture really demands a Chalcedonian exposition. Yeah, I think so. So um, two things worth mentioning here. Calvin actually picks up the temple language and uses it in two different ways. He talks about how Mary was the temple that basically held the word during her pregnancy. But then he also talks about how the body is the prison house for the soul, picking up on uh, some of the earlier philosophical thought, particularly, I believe, Plato here. And so I don't want to go in that direction to use it in that way. But I do think that the temple, as it's applied to Christ— is discontinuous with previous temples that would exclude the kind of thing you described for Sosinus, for instance. That the kind of temple dwelling that we have in the person of Christ is not merely God causally acting through a particular place, but God actually being personally or hypostatically present by person in the incarnate Christ. And so I do think that the temple language is a bit stronger, perhaps, than you suggested as it's applied in the New Testament to the person of Christ. Yeah, so I think when we get the critique of, is it in Corinthians, where I believe Paul says something like, do you not know that God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands? Mm-hmm. And and then when this is applied to Christ, we we have while there are these continuities with respect to the temple, there's also some significant discontinuities. So that's why I'm trying to say that the temple doesn't give us a, a knockdown, drag out winning argument for the extra Calvinisticum, but it does, I think, lend warrant 
to the idea, given the way the um, uh, to the concept that is given the way the the temple theme is applied to Christ in the New Testament. Okay. Dr. Gordon, in the latter portion of the book, you argue that in addition to being coherent and defensible and biblical in the sense you just explained, do you think that theologians should accept the extra Calvinisticum also because it earns its keep in the sense that it can provide insights into areas of Christian theology beyond strictly the subject of incarnation? So can you explain a few of those ways to us? Sure. Uh, One recent work basically said we should restrict the extra Calvinisticum to being a very minor point of Christology. And the book came out when I was about four months away from submitting a final draft of my dissertation. And so it was it was like the first book that's come out on the extra Calvinisticum since like 50 years. And so <laughs> in some ways it was terrifying, but also it provided a really good counterpoint to my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I want to say that this doctrine ought not just to be restricted to Christology proper. There's been some people who want to take the extra Calvinisticum either to talk about the relationship between God and creation generally. So they talk about ways that we might see God, I think the best concept to use here would be general revelation, though it's not general, it's Christological revelation in a non-Christological way. So they might say, like, in the same way that the extra Calvinisticum says that God is revealed explicitly in the person of Christ, yet maintains presence beyond Christ, so too some people might say, well, we can look at Jesus Christ and know who God is, but we also, in the things of creation, see who God is in a Christological way, because that knowledge of God is is actually something that is done through Christ. I don't go in this direction of, of wanting to talk about like Rahner's anonymous Christian and the talk of religious pluralism and whatnot, but I do think that it helps us with the doctrine of creation and understanding what general revelation might be as it relates to the person of Christ. This is the idea that people, for instance, people who never had any opportunity to hear the gospel, they they might still have access to the word through creation, to the logos? Yeah, that's what, um, that's the way that Carl Rahner takes it. And also Edward Oakes has a book on evangelical and Catholic Christology where he outlines how this issue of the extra Calvinisticum is relevant for some modern Catholic discussions of revelation like this. And so I don't go in that direction of saying that those who don't experience a particular revelation of Christ firsthand in like scripture or whatnot somehow can have like access to him through just the experience of creation generally. But that's one way that it has been taken. I particularly think it's most useful when we look at things like the Eucharist and also divine omnipresence. These two things are, I think, the way that as I mentioned, my my current project is going to take me to talk more about omnipresence and how we can have a Christologically informed account of divine presence, but also in further understanding the Eucharist. So the Reformed view of the Eucharist says that Christ is actually present in the Eucharist, though not bodily. And here we might say the way that presence can happen is by virtue of the divine nature that is present everywhere. Uh, can be particularly present in the Eucharistic elements. This is in contrast to the Lutheran view or the Catholic view. And so I think that it's it's relevant for 
for the Eucharist and Eucharistic theology, also relevant for our understanding of omnipresence as well. Dr. Gordon, thanks for talking with us. Thanks again, Dale. This was really fun. This week's thinking music has been the track The Ants Built a City on His Chest by Dr. Turtle. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.